Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning. Apologies for my delay. I was sitting downstairs thinking that we were very much more delayed than we actually are. And of course, you guys were waiting for me up here. So apologies for that. Um, our container panel discussion, just very quickly by way of uh, introduction, we see the container market uh, continue to fluctuate across all sectors with very little by way of trends being formed. I think that's safe to say. We also see utilization rates continue to rise with very few areas or sectors uh, remaining idle. On the new build side, we see that some considerable sense is being shown and uh, new build activity uh, appears to be low or certainly um, the, the demand supply imbalance is being corrected. And then as a general view of the market, we see continued consolidation amongst the, the players. We see new players uh, emerging in different centers of gravity in different jurisdictions. So the, the move from, from German ownership to uh, other jurisdictions is, uh, if anything, accelerating. We see very much in the way of new financial structures coming into the container markets as well, increasing of uh, lease activities. Change of markets, uh, production hubs shifting to markets and different methodologies uh, which the container operators have to put into their plans. The unstoppable rise of the internet giants and something I've come back to uh, during these questions, the Amazons and the Alibabas and the big logistics companies, they're getting more and more involved in this space and showing interest that they want to get involved in this space. And of course, last but not least, increased IT technology uh, digitalization demands on the container uh, owners and line operators. So huge amount of challenges, huge amount of uh, issues to be dealt with. To make some sense of this, we have uh, Howard Finkel on my left, who is the Executive Vice President of Costco Shipping for North America. We have uh, Tassos Aslidis, CFO of uh, Euroseas, to his left. And then finally, at the end, we have Mr. Ian Walker, who I'm sure you know from previous conferences, uh, CEO of Global Ship Lease. Now, I'm going to uh, be asking a number of, of questions. The panelists have received these questions in advance, but not knowing who's going to get what. And I would encourage the panelists as well to uh, enter into a debate. Don't think because you haven't been picked on by a question that you can't contribute, because I think the, the more of a debate it becomes, the better. And we saw a number of really good debates uh, uh, this morning. To start off with a, a, a hot topic, and one that uh, engendered a quite considerable amount of debate in one of this morning's panels, uh, to scrub or not to scrub, that's the question. Uh, thoughts from uh, the panelists. Uh, are scrubbers as relevant in the container sector as in other se sectors, or are we shifting more and more towards LNG? And I'd start with Ian uh, uh, with that first question. Um, thank you. I mean, yes, I want to forget the scrubber part, go back and look at the emission control in 2020, and clearly it's just as relevant for us as every other sector, and it's uh, kind of the right thing to do uh, from, from an environmental perspective. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to tell you anything that you don't already know. Um, the, the, the percentage of the container ship fleet that is going to be scrubber ready for, for 2020 is small, 5% maybe. 
Um, therefore, 95% of the container ship fleet is going to comply, it has to comply, by burning low sulfur fuel. Um, and, and yes, there are some, at, at the margins, some uh, alternate fueled vessels, LNG uh, vessels being built, but they uh, really won't make a great deal of difference in the big picture. They make a difference to the operator who's operating those vessels, but not to the industry. Um, so, is there going to be enough fuel? Is it going to be in the right place? How much more is it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it, etc.? Et those debates continue. Um, most recently, and Costco may have a view on this, but we've seen uh, stuff in the press about the big lines beginning to talk with their customers about how to pass on the billion, the two billion of increased costs that they think they're going to um, to suffer from, from burning low sulfur fuel. I guess we'll have to wait until 2020, 2021 to, to find out how successful that cost pass-through has been. Ultimately, someone has to bear that cost. I guess ultimately it's all of us in this room as consumers having to pay a little bit more for what we buy in the shops that has been made somewhere else. There does seem to be in the container sector a greater willingness to look at optionality. Uh, certain other sectors, there are very definite views. Yes, scrubbers are definitely the, the answer, but in the container markets, you're seeing some of the big lines saying, well, no, first of all, we're being flexible, and secondly, we're going to pass the cost uh, to us on to the end uh, consumer. Uh, is that something that, that Costco is seeing as well? Is that an attitude that Costco has? Yeah, that's a very timely question, because I can tell you <clears throat> right after uh, this, I have to run back into our office uh, to discuss with the president about uh, a new bunker formula. Um, it's not 100% clear. I think uh, scrubbers are going to be used. Uh, a lot of the carriers, I know uh, Maersk and MSC just came out with a new bunker formula. I'm not crazy about it. I don't think the shippers are. I don't think it's transparent enough. Um, but something has to be done. The problem is when we collect anything, and it's an increase in cost, we have a terrible time doing it. And in the past, uh, in the United States, we still have the ability to, uh, we have antitrust immunity to talk to our competitors, but it's not being used. Actually, the, the last forum for doing that was the TSA. We shut that down around a half a year ago. So the carriers are kind of working in the blind, making decisions where something like bunker around 10 years ago when uh, the, the bunker started really rising. Carriers were, were putting bunkers into their rates and, and losing our shirts. Uh, today, the, uh, the TSA came out with a pretty good formula where we talked to the shippers and we got some agreement. I'd say 80% of the, the cargo we moved moved under a, a TSA bunker formula, but now there's no TSA and that bunker bunker formula is horribly outdated. Um, so, you know, yes, there's the scrubber issue is something that's on the table, but also collecting the right amount of bunker is on the table. And uh, as I said, I'm going back to discuss this issue. I've been dealing with Platts in London. They seem to have something going. I'm going to take a very hard, cold look at it because uh, I feel the, uh, the bunker formulas that have been put out to the trade are, are really not what's needed yet. And I think the shippers have to have a say in it. Um, and we'll see where we'll go from there. I, I could probably give you more information at 6 o'clock tonight. Certainly, uh, as a management company, we're 
we have to take a stance on this, and, and our stance is increasingly wait and see. Um, you know, the price of scrubbers will uh, inevitably come down and, and, and options will, will increase, and we just don't know yet what the availability of low sulfur fuel and or price will be. So wait and see is, is probably uh, a sensible advice. Tassos, is that, does that ring true with you, or does, what, what exact, approach you're taking? Yeah, this is exactly what we are, the position we're taking. I think I agree with Ian that uh, on, the, on the container sector, and especially on the feeder container sector that uh, Eurosys is active, a small percentage of ships will be equipped with scrubbers. So the competition really, uh, the other owners would be on the same, on the same boat and uh, we will have to collectively deal with uh, the trends as they, as they are formed. If I can add something on Howard's comments, if there is a segment where owners and liners can come in some uh, agreement with the shippers and uh, agree on a formula to transfer the cost is the is our sector and the container ships, especially the big ones, because there are fewer players on, on both sides, at least on the, on the big scale, especially with Alibaba and uh, Amazon that are coming up as you implied in the beginning. Uh, that, that's an area where we can find some sort of common ground and the formula eventually be mm. put in place. But one, one, one further thought on this. Um, you know, <coughs> Eurocees and, and, and GSL focus on broadly the same ship category, mid-sized and smaller. Um, we, we both have ships in the short-term charter market and like to see that market as strong as possible. Um, you, you could argue that if the only way that you're going to comply is by burning low sulfur fuel, you want to burn less of it. Um, and the response in the past to high fuel prices has been to slow steam. So in a high fuel cost environment driven by compliance, are we going to see the entire fleet slow steam? more than it is today, including small ships, mm. which hitherto really haven't slow steamed so much. It's less effective with short sea journeys and so on, with more time in port. But if, uh, if there is an increase in slow steaming, that will absorb capacity, uh, it'll mm. reduce supply, um, and therefore there'll be further tension in the supply-demand equation, which, all things equal, will drive up charter rates, which would be good for owners. Just on that note, uh, you know, to the, to the ignorant, trade volumes uh, continue to go up. Vessel oversupply has been uh, checked to a certain extent and, and is reverse. Um, but earnings, everything that you read from the big liner operators, uh, earnings continue to uh, decrease or, or disappoint. So what do you think is wrong from an investment point of view, from an investor point of view, with the model? Is there something wrong with the model of these uh, liner companies? Howard. Um, it's hard for me to talk about the investment point of view. I could tell, talk, talk about the, the hardcore business point of view. Um, we, since OSRA, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, uh, carriers move 99.99% of cargo on contracts. And, you know, we were in a tremendously competitive environment with oversupply of vessels. Um, as has been mentioned, the oversupply of vessels seems to have been checked for the moment. Um, however, you never know what's coming around the corner. But uh, in these contracts, um, there is so much... Uh, you could agree, first of all, the rates have been terrible, and uh, 
this year was actually a good year for the spot market because the spot market rates have stayed up fairly high. Um, but they're going on, if you look at 2018, um, the spot market in 2017 was pretty horrible. And at one point when the spot market, it, they, they existed side by side where if you were in the spot market when things were really good, ships were full, you're going to pay a high rate, and when ships were empty, you paid the lowest rate. And the BCO market, beneficial cargo owners basically had a contract, and that should have sit, sat somewhere in the middle. But uh, the BCO started paying a lot of attention to the spot market, and I think they tried to negotiate with the lowest spot level market uh, rate, uh, which was horrible. So along with very, very low rates, these contracts have ridiculous amounts of free time in them. Uh, free time costs money. There's nothing free about free time. Um, all sorts of give, giveaways, liability issues. Um, it's kind of funny. I, one of my major responsibilities, I negotiate the terms on all our service contracts. And I could tell you, it just seems like uh, I'm not an attorney by trade, but Costco, when I first started working there, they, they had me look over a lot of what the attorneys were doing, and they said, you look like you know what you're doing. So they used to send me to Lloyd's of London for maritime seminars and law, and now I do a lot of legal work for them. But I, I can't believe some of the other, my competitors, that they let some of these contracts with these draconian terms get into the contracts. Well, it, sound, it sounds like the model is a little bit broken then, or, or stuck in a... It is. Uh, stuck we, in a, we, need, right. we need to break the model, we got to start new. To, to dangerously oversimplify it, you can say that the liner model was to drive costs down at all costs. And they tried to do it in two ways, by building bigger vessels, inevitably creating oversupply, and by encouraging efficiencies by doing alliances and eventually mergers. We have been in a continuous transition for the last so many years that I remember, definitely the last 10. If we are done with the cost cutting through building new ships, perhaps now the liner model comes in balance and we'll see how it's going to work as an economic model as opposed to being in a transitional phase. Has, has uh, <laughs> consolidation worked? We've seen a lot of consolidation from the likes of uh, from Maersk and CMA. Uh, we've seen one uh, come into existence, will we see two or three? Uh, and is consolidation the answer? Because it doesn't seem to be. It, it seemed to be the panacea of all ills for, for Maersk, but uh, that seems to have been reversed as well, where, where profits are again down despite cost cutting, et cetera, et cetera. So is consolidation the answer? Ian. Well, it's, it's difficult for me to comment, not, not being inside liner companies, um, or at least not recently. Um, big question is what those results would have been if there hadn't have been consolidation and there hadn't have been cost cutting. Uh, I know it's, it, it's clear that cost saving opportunities exist either by legal consolidation, mergers, acquisitions, or by contractual consolidation through the, the alliances which Tassos just, just mentioned, which are you know, designed to um, manage capacity effectively and reduce the, the cost of running the ship system. Um, uh, going back 15, 20 years, I was in a liner company. We did consolidate and we were very successful at it uh, by taking out significant amounts of costs from uh, ship networks, from landside infrastructure, 
uh, from supplier contracts. Um, and I'm sure that continues today with the big consolidations and the small ones that we've, we've seen. Uh, is there more to come? Very difficult to, to tell. Uh, is it the answer? No, but it is an answer toward cost efficiency and therefore improve productive, uh, uh, profitability. As I say, it's, we don't, we're not in a laboratory. We can't run controls on with and without consolidation, but I have to think that uh, it, it, by and large, is a good thing for the industry uh, to, to, to manage capacity better uh, with uh, fewer large players. But it's still pretty disaggregated as, a, as an industry. If you look at the top, top five or 10, um, it's still pretty broad in terms of, uh, of, of managed capacity. Another way, if I can add, to achieve um, lower costs and uh, position competitively is <clears throat> the vertical integration that certain companies could per are pursuing and could pursue more. For example, Maersk, from, and also in, with the presence of uh, big shippers, again, going back to your theme of uh, earlier, there might be uh, more logic and more need to vertically integrate from the shipper, from the commodity shipper to the liner, to the port terminals, so if, along with uh, data use and uh, digitization, I mean, everything seems to be coming together. You can have two lines of cost efficiencies, consolidation to the extent there is more to, to happen, and vertical integration. That, that kind of uh, takes the wind out the next sa uh, the sale, which was, uh, you know, given that we have seen huge cost cutting by these liner uh, companies, and we're probably right paired right down to the, uh, the bone, how else can these companies achieve scale? Uh, how else can they uh, optimize the services? And, and, and Tassos, you quite rightly say uh, verticalization, um, but any other ideas of, of, of how the companies might achieve scale, Howard? There's a lot of different ways. Um, you know, we, we, I think Maersk really stepped out in front and tried to offer the the trade optimum services for premium prices. I remember the daily Maersk, uh, and that seemed like a great idea, and we were very all interested in it. At the end of the day, the shippers are only interested in the right side of the menu, the price. I can tell you we had, uh, we started really discussing service with shippers um, and trying to get service into the service contract so we could actually um, charge more for excellent service. One major, major company whose name shall not be mentioned um, said, okay, we're going to give you, uh, this is your rate, uh, your rate, let's just say for, it wasn't the rate, but let's say it's from China to the West Coast, we're going to give you $2,000, and if you meet everything in our criteria here as far as ships on, on time, um, clean equipment, documentation, we're going to give you a bonus every quarter of $200, which is great. That whole year we met the bonuses and we did very well. Next year the contract came out, that clause was out of it. Um, we just have to do a better job of looking at what the, the contracts are, negotiating the contracts. As far as consolidation, we were kind of lucky. You know, our consolidations, um, we, we're not supposed to say merge, but we kind of merge with China shipping. Now, China shipping, a lot of the executives were Costco executives, so there was a lot of similarities. But when it came to my desk, when we had all these new salespeople, 
and I had all these new contracts that were signed with China Shipping. Terrible terms that the, the rate didn't look bad, but the give backs with free time, uh, liability issues, um, killed it. And we were lucky, I was lucky to, to take some of those out in the next, uh, in the next go around. But uh, the carriers have to go out and really start selling service and looking at what they're signing in these contracts because this year we're going to get higher rates than we got in, in 2018 or the 2019. But can, I, can I just interrupt there? I mean, you're, you're talking there about doing what you do better, but I think looking at the, the major line of companies, yours included, mm -hmm. they're, they're pretty much doing what they're doing at a very very well and very pared down. What I was looking at more was do we have to do or do you have to do things completely differently? And, and this is where Tassos was coming at the sort of the vertical structures. How else, apart from doing things better, do these liner companies achieve scale? And, and uh, it, it, it may be IT or it may be the type of commercial platforms that Maersk are now looking at to integrate the whole process, literally from door, from the seller's door to the buyer's door and taking control of that. But uh, uh, Ian, do you want to comment on that at all? I don't know enough about it, frankly. <laughs> That's um, very so, so no, but, I mean, there, there are major line of companies which are tying up with logistics providers um, uh, and, and trying to create this vertical integration. Let, let, let's see how it works. But you know, fundamentally, um, the companies, line of companies, ship owners' results are, are, are driven by revenues, and revenues are driven by the spot market, which is driven by supply and demand. Um, as you said in your introduction, Mark, on, on, the, on the, the ship owning, chartering outside with an order book that's under control, um, a mid-sized and small container ship fleet, which is by and large representative of the charter market contracting over the last few years rather than expanding as scrappings have exceeded new deliveries and demand, as you said, growing in the trade lanes that use those sorts of ships. We've seen supply and demand come into balance with a low idle fleet and charter rates and asset values have moved up. They can move up more. Um, the liner companies uh, still have an oversupply of very large ships, which they built to get these scale economies, uh, because it isn't a team game. You know, if, if one major liner company builds 20,000 TU ships, the others have to as well. It becomes an arms race. And, and in large measure, that's what's affecting the results on the big trades uh, Asia, Europe, and uh, Asia into North America. So it, it still comes back to the fundamentals of managing supply, which is tough. It's always been tough to manage. Mm. Tassos, do you, uh, do you see, or would you agree with the proposition that the, the winners in the line of companies of the future will be those companies with the most integratable, flexible IT platforms? Yeah. And, and not just amongst their client base, but also perhaps within the vertical structures that you were talking about before? Absolutely. I, I agree and uh, <clears throat> I fully believe in that. Every other article on blockchain you read, they give the containers industry, the container trade, as an example of where this new technology can be applied. Uh, and, I mean, from the little I know in that area, I mean, I, I've seen some companies taking steps towards that. Um, use of, bi of big data and the all these new technologies <clears throat> will allow, especially liner companies, because they have a more complicated operational model as compared to, to ours, mm -hmm. uh, to, to take full use, to make full use of all this, 
and to provide better service and different service to their clients. And, and would you also, um, perhaps a question for Howard, uh, would you also agree that perhaps the liner companies are also coming from a position behind the rest of the market? I don't mean that they, they have not done things they should have done in relation to investment, but because of the consolidation, because of the incompatible systems, uh, they're starting from a, a point behind the rest of the market and have a certain degree of catch-up to do, and maybe that explains um, uh, some, some of the lack of profitability at the moment that could otherwise be there? Yeah, I'd, I'd say partial, that's partially true. As mentioned, the, the, uh, as far as IT and technology, um, no secret, I, I'd probably say Maersk is up ahead of some of the other carriers currently, uh, but th their efforts really have not borne fruit there. Um, we're lucky now, Costco now has purchased OCL, OCL, as far as technology, is way advanced. We bought their uh, computer system years ago, and ours kind of stayed where it was, and they, they kept developing theirs. So, yeah, I think the industry as a whole is behind the eight ball in technology and IT. However, um, when innovation comes out and is offered to the, to the trade, um, it, it, it seems it's going to change eventually, but it's still the trade seems to say, okay, you know, you can have all these great bells and whistles, and we can uh, find out where our cargo is, and we can get documentation, and everything moves, and we can book blocks of cargo out. Uh, there's there's things like NYSHEX coming out, which looks like a good idea. But at the end of the day, the shippers are uh, still looking at that low price. I think it'll be broken because. Um, right now, the supply and demand is coming a little bit more into the carrier's favor, and I think uh, we have to have some very serious talks with the shippers about how we move forward and what they need from us. They can give us ideas of what they need from us as far as technology, but what we need financially to become viable companies. Tassos, um, do you... Uh see the, the Amazons and the Alibabas that we, we, we talked about and the large logistics companies uh, with an appetite for these, these vertical structures. Do you see them uh, as a threat or, or as an opportunity for uh, the container industry? And, and the second part of that, do you potentially see the day where Amazon simply swallows up the like, even the likes of Maersk as part of its vertical structure? It's hard to say whether it's a threat of an opportunity. I would like to see it as an opportunity. In, in any event, I think Amazon would be, I, I, I view it as a consolidator of cargo, so there would be, it's an, a, a huge e-tailer in a sense, right? So, but they would need to po position their wares near their demand, so they have to work out on this model and uh, consolidate various commodities across the board, I guess, various finished goods, I presume. So, <clears throat> so that will change a little bit the way this, these uh, goods are shipped. I would imagine there would be Amazon and Alibaba would be on a more integrated model side because it's not only the shipping part, which is the better defined piece of it. They would have to select depots where they can concentrate uh, inventory from which they would have other ways of transporting it to the final destination that might involve land, air, or <coughs> others, or other ships. 
the feeder model might be might get some benefit from it in an in, in area that uh, me and Ian sort of uh, are involved a bit. But so it's, it's not clear whether it's a threat or an opportunity. A threat would be in the sense if there is less demand, everything becomes so efficient and less ships are needed. Opportunity if there are more ways to em either employ ships or more broadly for society to find ways to deploy resources better. Keeping with the theme, um, what are the present threats or, or challenges or even opportunities for the container shipping? I noticed on the front page of uh, Financial Times this morning, the headline was that the, the Trump uh, or the US-China trade war seems to be intensifying. Uh, is that, uh, should we be looking at that as a threat to container shipping or will it uh, um, remain relatively unscathed from that? Over to you, Ian. It's difficult to say. I mean, like, like every industry, uncertainty is unwelcome. Um, and trade wars, tariff wars, how you comply with IMO 2020, um, consolidation, Alibaba, or Amazon, it, it's all uncertain. Um, and, and we kind of don't like that. Um, it, it, are trade wars going to you know, have a step change effect on the industry? Probably not, but you know, who, who, who can tell? Uh, our thesis is that um, there will be a modest effect. We, we think that that effect will be reduced on the mid-sized and smaller trade lanes, which are um, feeders to the main east-west trade lanes, which would be more affected directly by tariff wars between China and North America or the US. Uh, so maybe where, where we play uh, will be less directly affected. But it, 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 it's tough to tell. I mean, our industry runs not only on sort of economics of supply and demand, but also sentiment. Uh, everybody we speak to agrees that the fundamentals are supportive. Small order, but good demand growth, da 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 as I've just said. Um, uh, uh, but uh, we're seeing a, a slight softening in, the, in freight rates, sorry, in charter rates and asset values right now. Is that seasonal? Um, purely? Is, is it sentiment? Because uh, it isn't fundamentals, uh, we don't believe. So um, it, it's, it's the uncertainty from trade wars, tariff wars, uh, uh, probably combined with seasonality. Just last quick question for Howard. What's the, the sweet spot uh, in the sector, in the container sector at the moment? The sweet spot is, as far as I'm concerned, is this year uh, we were able to keep the, um, the spot rate mark level up. And truthfully, it's kind of odd. The, um, this tariff issue and the trade war kind of helped that uh, because people rushed to get uh, cargo on the vessels. Our, our ships have been full both ways. So we're going into a 2019 negotiating period uh, at a fairly healthy spot level and I think um, that's a start. Brilliant. Thank you very much to my panel for their uh, knowledgeable incisive comments. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.